the children in the days when people wrote books and stories, most of them were written on scrolls and uh, no bright covers, no attractive advertising gimmicks. And I've sort of speculated to myself, if you lived in the first century and went into a scroll shop, and I've done a bit of research, but I can't find out whether there ever was such a thing, but just imagine, instead of going into Waterstones with all the bookshelves, you walked into one of these antique sort of places with rolls and rolls of scrolls. How would you decide what to read? And what would decide whether it was a bestseller or not? Have you ever thought about these? These are the kind of things pastors think about in their uh, insane moments. <laughs> insane moments. Well, the most important thing is how you begin. Because how you begin catches the attention of the person who is reading. So here you are in the scroll shop and you pick up a scroll that says Mark on it or something like that, a mark that says Mark. And you begin to unroll it and you read the opening sentence. There it is. Arche tu angeliu Jesu Christu huiu theu. For those who don't read Greek, which I'm sure most of you do. Or in English, for those who read in English, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, let's be honest, friends. This is hardly an eye-catching, attention-grabbing, must-read-on, can't-put-down opening to a story. But that's because we weren't the people to whom it was first written. And we lose the impact of the words. You open it up and you discover this is a gospel story. In fact, the writer says it's the gospel story. What is the gospel? Well, the word literally means good news. It was used in the ancient world uh, on an occasion like a military victory. And when you announced the victory, it was the gospel. But these were the days of the Roman Empire. And the Romans had hijacked this word gospel. And they used it specifically for events of major importance in the Roman Empire, which was the only empire that the world knew in those days. Such as the birthday of the emperor, or his accession to the throne, or the birth of his son. Here's, here's a famous document from the first century, from the Roman province of Asia. And this is a gospel decree that was put out by the Romans. Well, it's put out by some guy who wanted to get in with the Romans and uh, get some credit with them. And it's celebrating the birthday of the Emperor Augustus, which is on September the 23rd, if anyone else has the same birthday. And he describes this gospel as, this birthday is a day which we may justly count as the equivalent to the beginning of everything. Inasmuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe, at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born to the common blessing of all men. Terrible, isn't it? The writer goes on to proclaim that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with Caesar's birth. That's a Roman gospel. Now, Mark writes his gospel. And he says, this is the beginning of the gospel. As soon as you see the word gospel, you say, hey, there's something really important coming up here. Which gospel is it? Is it Caesar Augustus? No, he says, it's a gospel about someone called Jesus. Now, Jesus was a very common Jewish name. 
really a Hebrew name, Yeshua, or in English, Joshua. It means the Lord is salvation, or salvation is the Lord. In the case of this Jesus, an angel, before he was born, gave him this name. Matthew tells us in his Gospel, his parents were told, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save, Yeshua will save his people from their sins. Interestingly, within a few decades, the name Jesus dropped out of common usage among Jews for two reasons. One, Christians wouldn't use it out of reverence for Jesus. Jews wouldn't use it out of abhorrence for Jesus, this Jesus that he's speaking about. And then he says, it's the gospel about Jesus Christ. Now Christ, some people think Christ is a surname. You know that Jesus' parents were called Joseph and Mary Christ. People do believe that today. No? No? Christ is a title. The Christ. It has a Hebrew form. This is Greek. Christos, Christ. And the Hebrew form is Messiah. Mashiach. And both of them mean the same thing. The word literally means to be anointed with oil. That you pour oil on top of the head of someone. Now, you don't do that because you don't like them. Or pouring the chip pan on your partner's head or whatever. It was done at ceremonial occasions for an important person, a king or priest. You poured olive oil, a little olive oil, on their heads. And it said that this person is appointed by God for a special task. And the word among the Jews came to mean the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. Now, it's a bit more exciting, this scroll now, isn't it? This is the good news about the Saviour, who is the Christ. And not only that, he then goes on to say, he is the Son of God. And this account of Mark, as we're going to be studying it over this year, Mark is going to give us all the evidence that proves that this man really is the Son of God come to earth in human form. In fact, right at the end of the Gospel, when this man Jesus dies on a cross and breathes his last, a hard-bitten Roman centurion standing by the cross. He's seen it all, done it all. He says in a loud voice, surely this man was the Son of God. So the reader is invited and urged to read on, for this is the most important gospel announcement in human history. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. God who began by creating everything, in the beginning, God created, Genesis 1 verse 1, is the God who is going to do something new. He's making a new beginning. One writer, David Garland, comments, God is a God of beginnings. The good news of Mark is that God begins again with the chosen people by sending His Son. Now, when we come to Mark's Gospel, we discover that unlike Matthew and Luke, there is no Christmas story about the birth of Jesus let alone when we come to John about the pre-existence of Jesus before time in eternity. No, Mark begins his gospel with Jesus at the age of 30 about to begin his public ministry. But before the entrance of the king onto the center stage of human history and the life of Israel, there is a herald who comes to announce the coming of the king, prepare the way. And that's the theme of these opening verses in front of us. Now, it really will help to have the Bible in front of you. I'm going to be looking at one or two other things. So, if you don't have a Bible, turn to Mark 1 again. It's page 1002.
And I want to suggest to you from these verses that here in these verses we have three challenges. Three challenges to the people of Israel and to us today. Because this is still God's Word. This is still the Gospel, the good news for you and me here in Edinburgh, 21st century. Alright? Three challenges. So, if you're sitting comfortably, here's the first one. Wake up! For four long centuries, the voice of the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, and thus the voice of God has been silent in Israel. But now the word of God, spoken through these prophets long ago, preserved in written form as a testimony, because the prophet writes and says, God is going to do this. I'm writing it down as a record. And when it happens, you will look back and say, this is God's word. It's about to be fulfilled. Look what he says. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now notice that Mark attributes this to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah is a prophet that Mark quotes most frequently. He is the prophet. But in actual fact, it's an amalgamation of three different Quotations from the Hebrew Scriptures, from our Old Testament. And each of them refers to key events, the beginnings of the history of Israel. Look at the first one. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The first one is from the book of Exodus. It's right back in the Old Testament, chapter 23, in which God promises, as his people Israel, you know the story, they were slaves in Egypt, God promised that he would take them out to the promised land, and before they, as they were on the way, God gave a promise to them in Exodus 23. See, I am sending an angel, same word in Hebrew, angel, messenger, ahead of you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. And that's combined with a promise from the last of all the prophets, 400 years ago, the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, in which God warns that he will send his messenger before God's final day. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then the reference, this reference to a voice of one calling in the desert is from Isaiah chapter 40. When the people of Israel were way in exile, God promised to bring them back through the desert, back to the promised land. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now again, you can read this and think, well, what's he telling us all that for? It's all to do with sort of old stuff that was written a long time ago. The reason he makes such a point of this is that God has spoken. And when God says he's going to do something, he always does it. Right down to the last letter. His promised Messiah is about to arrive. And so, here's this wake-up call to the people of Israel. Wake up! All the promises of God are about to come to fulfillment. What God promised that he would do, that he would send his messenger. This is the big event. And he sends the message through a man called John, who operates in the desert region. God's word is announced through a human voice in a particular place. Look at verse 4. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism for the repentance, of repentance, for the, give, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we know from Luke's Gospel that this man, John, was a cousin of Jesus, born about six months before him, 
And he came from a priestly family. His father, Zechariah, was a priest. What is interesting is that John does not operate as a priest in a temple. He operates as a prophet in the desert. John is the voice. He is reminiscent of the greatest of the prophets, Elijah. His appearance is very much like Elijah. He dressed, he used the same uniform, if you like. And as a prophet, not a priest, he doesn't minister in the temple, or even Jerusalem as part of the established religion, but in the desert region. Now, now the desert, or wilderness, was a kind of barren, scrub-like place, barren, chalky soil, covered with pebbles, broken stock, uh, rocks, a bit of uh, brushwood here and there. Um, and it extended from the hill, if you know your geography, it extended from the hill country of Judea to the west and right down to the Dead Sea. There's a map on there, if you like a map, to see where it was. Now, this was a very significant place in the life of Israel, the desert. When he said desert to Israelites, they thought of certain things. They thought of the time that they wandered in the desert for 40 years on the way from Egypt to Canaan, wandering around in this desert region. It was a time of testing, a place of testing. They'd experienced God's judgment, but also his mercy. And it was also a place of transition, because Joshua, their great leader, he had brought them through the desert, crossing over the Jordan into God's promised land. And this then was where John operated. A voice calling in the desert, calling the Lord's people to get ready for the arrival. He's a herald saying, the king is about to come. Wake up. Get ready. Now, we do not live in that period of history, 2,000 years back, before the coming of Christ. No, we live A.D., after the coming of Christ. Nonetheless, this is a reminder to us that God is a God of history. God has a plan of history that stretches right from the beginning of time. In fact, the Bible says God planned it in eternity. And God's plan is being carried out. And God reveals his plan to people ahead of time. He tells them what's going to happen in order that we might be ready for it when it does happen. And God's plan of history is still in place today. It is centered on Jesus, God's Son. And although we may live at a time when we think, well, God isn't saying very much, God is voiced in silent as it did for 400 years before this event, Nonetheless, God's plan is still in place. It is centered on his son Jesus. And I want to tell you, it is centered now, not on his first coming, but on his second coming. God's word is a wake-up call, and it says to all of us, get ready, because God's king came the first time as a baby. He will come again as a mighty king on the clouds. We are waiting, not for the final installment, but for the return of the king. Not a film, but reality. So even in the New Testament, we find in the book of Second Peter, that people were saying, where is the promise of this coming? This coming of Jesus. You can look it up later, the, the verses there. And he says to him, make no mistake, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years is one day, God is not slow keeping his promises. He's waiting and giving you a chance to repent, as John did. Get ready, because the king is coming. And it's vitally important that you are ready for his coming. And I simply want to say to you this morning, that this may be God's wake-up call to you. You may think I'm off my head, that Jesus is going to come back again, and every eye will see him. 
Listen, friends, it's possible now by television, what seemed impossible at one time. It's possible for television, it's possible for God. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ, this Jesus, will come again. And it says you have to be ready for his coming. It's a wake-up call. Maybe you don't normally go to church. You think, well, I do without that kind of stuff. And I simply say to you today, this is a wake-up call. Are you ready for the coming of the king? John issued his wake-up call, and everybody in Israel sat up and paid attention. And people by their thousands flocked to the desert, to the River Jordan. But John is not taken in by these vast crowds of people. He tells them that they must change their ways. So here's the second challenge. The first one is, wake up. These are meant so that you can remember them. The second one is, shape up. The most distinctive thing about this man, John, that set him apart from everyone else, was his practice. When people came to the River Jordan, and some of you have been to Israel and seen the River Jordan, um, his practice was that when people came, as a sign that they were serious about changing their ways, he dipped them or baptized them. The, word, the Greek word is baptizo, from which we get baptism. He dipped them under the water for a brief time and then brought them back up again. Now, this kind of thing was not totally unknown in those days. Uh, there were communities actually living out in the desert. The ones where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, a place called Qumran. They practiced ritual washing. But John's baptism was different. It was a single decisive act that a person took as a sign that they were turning from their old way of life and turning to their new way of life. Baptism was also practiced among the Jews. Not by the Jews, but if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew then you had to do two things. You had to be circumcised, if you were male, and you had to be baptized as well. What is radical about John's baptism is that he's saying to the Jewish people who thought, we are God's people, we don't need to change, he's saying to them, you too must be baptized. It was not a popular message, but John left them in no doubt. In Matthew's Gospel, uh, we read that John called them... A brood of vipers, the religious leaders, when they came out. And he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't think. You can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John said that God demanded repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind. Again, it's a Greek word in two parts, in metanoia, a change of mind, which leads to a change of behavior. Or as John put it, fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. Those of us who've got children know, you know, when when your kids fall out, you say to them, you need to say sorry to your brother or sister, you know? And they'll just go, sorry. And you know, and you say, no, no, that you didn't really mean it. You just said, sorry. John is saying, This is different. This is being sorry, changing your mind about your behavior, confessing what you've done, and putting it right. In his gospel, Luke gives specific answers. Tax collectors came and said to John, okay, what should we do then? And he said, only collect what you're supposed to collect. Soldiers, Roman soldiers came out to be baptized. He said, what should we do? He said, don't beat people up and extort money from them. There are specific cases of what repentance is really about. And those who were serious about this came and confessed their sins and were baptized in the river. Repentance meant then turning away from your old way of life, but it also meant turning to God and saying to God, 
Lord, I've, I've run my life my own way. I've done my own thing. I'm turning to you now. And God on his part promised that he would forgive those who did this. God promised forgiveness of sins. And so in this way, John was preparing the way for the coming of the king. He was a herald. He was saying, you've got to make straight those crooked ways in your life. You've got to knock down those barriers that are stopping you from seeking God. You've got to get ready for the coming of the king. You've got to shape up. Now again, we don't live at this point in history. But what I want to say to you this morning is that God's demands never change. Repentance is a must for all people. Whether you're a person who knows that you've lived a pretty rotten life and gone your own way, or whether you're a religious person who prides yourself in your behavior in your church going, you need to repent. You need to turn from your own self-centered ways because all of us by nature are self-centered. We go our own way. We do our own thing. And confession of sin is vital. It's essential that we turn from our sin and we turn to God. And the visual aid that God has given us of this is baptism. It's a wonderful visual picture. We'll see next week that Jesus himself was baptized for a somewhat different reason, but baptism is this wonderful picture. You actually go under the water and you say goodbye to the old way of life and you come out of the water and it's a symbol that you've got a new fresh start, washed, clean, ready to start again. It's a decisive act. We have a service plan for next month. If, you, if you're interested in being baptized, come and speak to me about it. Um, it's just a wonderful privilege. Sadly, sometimes I think you can only do it once. I was baptized years ago when I was a teenager, and I sometimes think, wouldn't it be wonderful to be baptized again? I can never understand people who are reluctant and say, oh, I don't really want to be baptized. Wow, what a privilege. Just to say publicly, I belong to Jesus Christ. I've turned from my sin. I'm seeking him, and I want to follow him all the days of my life, and I want everyone to know about this. This is a public demonstration. Now, that's what happened out in the Jordan. Uh, sometimes people come to me and say, I'd like to be baptized, but I'm a bit embarrassed in front of everyone else. Could you come to our house and do it in the bath? Well, te- te- <laughs> people have said that to me. But technically, no reason. But practically, why not? Are you ashamed to tell people you're a Christian? To declare publicly? There are people in the world today who, if they become Christians like this, some have been baptized in this church. Their lives are under threat because of the countries they live in and the decisive act that this is to follow Christ in this way. See, God's demands are unchanging. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people of God, the Apostle Peter preached this great sermon and the people realized they'd crucified their own Messiah. And it says they were cut to the heart and they said, what should we do? This is what Peter said. It's almost like John. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2:38, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's almost the same as John said, except for one extra thing. Do you notice the final sentence? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. John couldn't promise this, but someone else could. So here's the third challenge he leaves with people. Wake up, shape up, finally, look up. Verses 7 to 8. It's clear from the records of the other Gospels that when John caused this tremendous stir out in the desert and everybody was talking about him, people were asking questions saying, I wonder if this John really is the Messiah himself. But John leaves them in absolutely no doubt as he compares himself with Jesus. But what he says, this was his message 
After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, in comparison with him, my status is the lowest slave. Jesus is the exalted king. In those days, slaves had all sorts of menial tasks to perform. What's very interesting is that a slave was expected to do everything But it wasn't obligatory, we know from record, it wasn't obligatory for a slave to undo the sandals of his master. That was far too menial a task. He could do it if he wanted, but the master couldn't force him. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. He's far greater in status and authority. From my low position in the dust at his feet, all I can do is to look up to him. And he urges other people to look to him. So John in his Gospel records that John the Baptist begins to direct his own followers to go follow Jesus instead. On one occasion he sees Jesus and he says to them, Look, the Lamb of God, Jesus will die to bring about the forgiveness that John promises. The forgiveness of sins. When the Lamb of God is sacrificed on behalf of sinners. And John's mission is to prepare people for the coming of Jesus, the Christ. And once he appears to look up and tell others to follow him. Once that has happened, John's work is finished. People begin to drift away from following John. They begin to follow Jesus. And people say to John, aren't you upset about this? Imagine you're a preacher, and suddenly everybody begins to leave your church and go and follow someone else. How do you feel about it? And John says, listen, I'm just the best man. He's the bridegroom. He must become greater. I must become less. So people must look up to Jesus and follow Jesus. He is far greater in status. The focus of this church in Charlotte Chapel is not Charlotte Chapel. It is certainly not the pastor. The focus of this church is Jesus Christ. We preach Christ. Christ crucified. Christ exalted. Christ will come again. And Jesus is far greater in ministry than John, a greater ministry. John says, I baptize you with water. But Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, this was something that the prophets of old foretold. Joel, Isaiah, Ezekiel. The day when God would pour out His presence, not only on people, but in people. He would live with them. He would be in them. He would be their God. You see, you may say when you've heard me talking, well, I'd like to make a new start, but listen, I've, I've already broken my 2004 resolutions, and it's, it's not even the end of January yet. I just couldn't keep up that kind of life that God demands. Absolutely right, you've not got a chance. But God will make it possible because what God does, what God promises, is that He gives you His Spirit and you get not only a new start, but a new nature. That's why Jesus said, very hackneyed phrase these days, but it really means what He said. To a very religious man who wanted to know how he could get into God's kingdom, Jesus said to him, you must be born again. It's a complete transformation. It's a change of nature. God comes to live within you by His Spirit. It is almost impossible to explain it to you unless you're a Christian. But you can prove it by becoming a Christian. You turn from your sin, you turn to God, and He forgives you, and He gives you His Holy Spirit who comes to live within you. And Mark's Gospel, we'll see, will tell us the story, how Jesus accomplished His mission, was raised from the dead, returned to heaven in triumph and from there poured out His Spirit. And today we live after those events. 
We live in the most privileged period of human history. We live in the day of grace, the day of opportunity, the day of salvation. And Peter's words, spoken on the day of Pentecost, still stand today. This is the word of the gospel. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This then, is the message of Mark. This is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I simply ask you today, have you believed it? Have you believed in Him? Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted in Christ? Is His Holy Spirit living within you? What is your response? This is the great good news, the gospel. Let's pray together.